Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host. I am thrilled to be joined today by our special guest, Dr. Cherith Nordling. Welcome. And I'm thank you. I'm mildly thrilled to be joined by Dad. <laughs> like you're okay. <laughs> well, I, I got to go now. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to be the shortest episode ever. I didn't even make seven minutes. <laughs> um, hey, uh, just before we get into our discussion, I'm really excited about today's discussion. We are talking all about the humanity of Christ, uh, the humanity of Jesus, uh, talking out of the first four chapters of Matthew. Uh, and we're going to dig into that in just a moment. But I wanted to say, if you're watching right now, uh, why don't you go ahead, hit share. There's a share button somewhere underneath here on the, on the YouTube uh, live screen that you got there. If you hit share on that, and and then add a little uh, hashtag. I'm trying to be hip with it. A hashtag is the number sign. Yeah. And if you add hashtag Impact Nations to your share and just tell somebody you're watching the Impact Nations podcast and you're super excited to do so. If you do that, at the end of the month, we're actually going to we're gonna look at all of the hashtag Impact Nations posts out there. And we are going to give away one free gift card for $40 for the Impact Nations podcast. Uh, sorry, for the Impact Nations store. Uh, and... If I was you, if I had a $40 gift card to the Impact Nations store, I would get one of those hoodies that's got the Impact Nations logo right there. It's awesome. It's beautiful. And it'll keep you nice and warm on your next journey of compassion, too. So um, do that. Hashtag Impact Nations. Hit share. Uh, invite some others to join us as you watch as well. So that's all I got to do. All I got to say about that. Uh, Cherith Nordling, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much. You bet. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this. Absolutely, and, we and have. discovering that that our lives have overlapped or intersected a little bit uh, over the years, all the way back to you being at Regent and uh, me planning and pastoring a church in the same town, and then we just found out we have mutual friends in Cincinnati. Who knew? Who knew? Right. <laughs> all kinds of secrets to keep discovering. So. Good. <laughs> Um, hey, I'd love to jump right in here, uh, and we're, we're probably going to spend a lot of time in Matthew 4 today, uh, but maybe let's begin at the beginning, if we could, uh, with chapter 1. You said something, Dad, uh, when you first began teaching out of Matthew. You said uh, genealogy, the genealogy is gospel, uh, and... I said, prove it, and then you did. So if you haven't heard that episode, I think that was episode 5-3, uh, go back, listen to that. But Cherith, I wondered if you could speak to that at all about what what do you find in that genealogy? Because it's pretty easy to kind of get to the first chapter of Matthew there, and you, it, it suddenly we just got a lot of names. Uh, do you Do you find yourself digging for gold in there? I think so. I... I'm going to agree with your dad on that. <laughs> I think that, um, first of all, in the, in the ancient world, nobody was just an individual, right? Like you came from somewhere and your story was a personal story and it was a personed story. And the fact that God, even in um, relating through Abraham forward and then coming back to meet Moses and saying, I want to, I want to tell you who I am and not just say I am that I am, but to identify himself yeah. with relationships with human beings. Like that blows me away that he would be willing to say, I am the God of yeah. these three people, right? Like, and, and with all their limitations, all their craziness, 
their deception, their failure to be faithful, their faithfulness. Like, like I identify with them in a relational married covenantal way. And, and to think that even now, like he would be able to say of you and I, that he is the God of Cherith and Steve and Tim, that, that his commitment is really personal embedded commitment in a story. And so I think when we watch how the gospel writers are actually trying to introduce for the audiences who are hearing their story told um, as God's story for them and as Jesus' story for all of us, that, that there's a real intentionality about picking how and why there is a lineage line, right? And so if Luke wants to bring us all the way back to Adam to say, I want you to see how Jesus is going to reconstitute the whole human race, Matthew is so clear to say, I want you on every single page to be able to see Jesus not as an invasion from the outside in, but this recapitulation, this fulfillment, this um, continuity of God before the creation of the world, right? That the triune life of God makes this decision before all things to say, the way that I want to be God with and for them as Emmanuel, that the way that we will reveal ourselves as God triunely to them will in fact be as their savior, as well as their creator, but that this intentionality, this way of, of making ourselves known as God, as Father, Son, and Spirit, that that choice um, is, is woven precisely into Israel's story. Because Israel's story is the recapitulation of Adam's story, right? Like, how, what does it look like for God from the very beginning and all the way through Jesus and now with the church? Um, I'll borrow the phrase from my dad that... He's always about the business of making a people for his name and for his presence, that he's never about the business of saving individuals for heaven, but that he's about the business of making a people. And when his people fall, whether it's first fall or whether it's Israel's fall, it's watching God come around again and again and again to reestablish covenant and identity and purpose and finally, having Jesus be that ultimate recapitulation that looses us to finally be able to be who we will be forever. And so to, to watch Matthew choose the segments, those three segments of, of names, and to play with these this number 14, right? Like all these things that he's doing that have resonances to the audience who is listening to that, who can recite these things. He wants us to see and hear that this really is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That this is the fulfillment of first covenant all the way through to final new creations, um, eschatological hope. That what we see with Jesus is not just somebody who dips in to save us and disappears till we get to heaven, but that actually what we have finally seen is we have seen the, the fulfillment of covenant and the true human who has finally pulled off the, the gift of being so um, in our midst. And so I just love it. I love that he, he wants us to see Israel and the echoes of Israel all the time, that he wants us to hear the promise of Abraham, that he wants us to see Jesus 
being compared to Moses all the time, <laughs> that, that his, he's just bringing the thousands of years of faithful relational story and encounter of God with his people right centered into the life of this one person standing in mm. for all that's gone before. And then this new Israel that opens up out of him. So that he does it um, in the way Steve, that you mentioned in your teaching to even include um, not just Gentiles, but Gentile women, right? Like there's yes. something so gorgeous about going. And now part of the Abrahamic covenant was that all people, right? That all the nations of the earth, that all the discord and imbalance and hierarchy and um, ordering, false ordering of life in this world that all of these things will be upended and renewed by the humility and the humiliation of Jesus. And that women who ironically, uh, sometimes women will, will feel frustrated by the language of um, helper, right? That somehow she was Adam, Eve was the helper to Adam as if she's some kind of sidekick that, you know, just helps him <laughs> be better, his better version of himself. And yet, to use the word azer, right, as helper, and to realize this is God's language for himself, to say, but I am your azer, so why would you go to Egypt and look for an azer there, or mm. the powers and the authorities that you expect, this is the very character of God, and so to, to watch, again, Matthew's intentionality to not just speak a Jewish gospel for Jewish believers and Jewish followers under persecution, who are also privy to the kinds of story that would say, well, this resurrection wasn't really happening because that clearly from the way Matthew says, this is still going on, but that he's going to take this opportunity to, to literally um, bring in the names and the identities of people for whom Jesus reorders everything as new creation. So I, I think the genealogy is absolutely gospel and absolutely a way of um, God very personally saying, I've been here all along and I'm showing you by the way that this genealogy is set up, who, who has been a faithful image bearer, who has stayed in the storyline and who is absent from this yes. genealogy and the storyline in terms of faithfulness as I bring my faithful one to you. It seems to me very intentional with these four remarkable women that we don't have the the matriarchs of the Jewish faith in that list. Isn't that interesting? Amen. No Rebecca, yep. no Sarah, no, Sarah, no, no Leah, Rachel. Yeah, no. Yep. It's very interesting. Yeah. And and you know, you just said something that that he brings in these characters and he like turns everybody's expectations upside down. And I think I see a parallel there with with Luke the Magnificat, which is is so radical as you know it was considered seditious to read that passage in public uh, in uh, during the British Raj of India. So they're coming at it two different ways, but they're both saying this is not what you think you're going to get. Do, do you agree with that? I do, and I think as you said, like. I think it's so important to recognize that these women are women who have been um, who have been put upon 
Yes. Um, Tim, I'm thinking of the fact that over the last few sessions that I was watching and you were, you know, promoting the kinds of things that um, Impact Nations is doing in some of these contexts, that these women who you are supporting and coming alongside and giving back a life and an identity and a purpose in Christ, that that they're suffering, we would label them, right? As the the woman who's having the child out of wedlock or the prostitute or the whatever, as if this is her choice and calling in life, right? Instead of actually looking at the fact that, in, especially in that ancient world, I mean, these women had absolutely no choice about anything. Yeah. And so what's happening to them is happening to them at the hands of men and the powers and structures that exist. And, and to watch God choose them as to be part of the, his redemptive story, right? To, to let them be woven into the very um, DNA and life stream of God's redemptive life with us through his son, that, that blows me away because, again, so many times these would be women who would be cast off and cast out or certainly not women who would have any witness, even if they were women of high repute, right? That, yeah. yep. that the, the only woman I'm surprised not to see in this genealogy, but that's because she doesn't belong in that genealogy on that side, is Hagar. But it's so beautiful, right, to have Hagar be the one named, like, he is the God who sees me. And there's a different sense of um, entitlement or humility that you see compared to the language of Hagar there to Sarai, who can't really believe that God has seen her and dismisses that, even with an angelic visitation, right? And that he has seen her barrenness. And so I just, I just love the intentionality and the honor that is given back to both men and women in this genealogy, because no one's not busted in that genealogy, right? There's no one who doesn't have a story around their story. And yet God redemptively says, but I'm tied to them, right? I've, I'm bound to them, not just by covenant, but I'm binding myself to them through lineage and, and DNA. <laughs> it's pretty crazy, but pretty wonderful. Wow. Well, I agree with you. <laughs> Everything you said, I'll just say amen. Yep. <laughs> um, I wonder, just before we go on, you know, with the, the contextualizing it in the first century, could it be that Matthew is not only saying the gospel's big enough for the outcasts, even the, the women outcasts, but could it be that given that they were pretty clearly abused, the first three. I mean, Ruth Ruth was, you know, Moabites. Could it be that he's saying something about the way first century society or the church is treating and therefore should not treat women, or am I stretching it too much? Well, Let's hope for this, right? So, so if Matthew is somewhere maybe between 60 to 70 mm-hmm. AD, right? It doesn't take the church very long to lose the plot line of who she is <laughs> with the Lord. Really? <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, by the time Paul gets back to Jerusalem and they, they aren't even like letting the, the seven Gentile 
church leaders who are with him like stay in a Jewish home. You just go, oh my land. Like, like we really can't stay in this story very long. But assuming the best of the life of the church, I think that if anything, it's really potentially a way to bear witness to what the church should be looking like, right? If it's not happening, it's certainly a wake-up call that says, in this new world, in a honor-shame culture and in a patriarchal culture, here's the way that Paul, let alone the ways that we watch um, Luke tell us the story of how the church looks in Acts, but to have Paul say, every time you're trucking in old order ideas and structures that say, this is who's in power, this is who has a voice, this is who doesn't, he said, then you're not, you're not joined to God, right? That somehow you are no longer being faithful as the body of Christ. And, and that goes right to the heart of the moment in, in the challenge around their Eucharistic participation in 1 Corinthians 11. But I think that that, that I always imagine like, what is it like for this early church who's gathering together? And once it starts to extend out to the Gentiles as well, whether it's the church in Antioch or the church that, you know, grows up around Philippi or out of Cornelius household, which you have to assume happen, that, that these Jewish men, first of all, who had never even sat next to their wives in a synagogue, right? That there's a curtain that separated them from worship their whole life. They're now sitting in the company of not just Jewish women, both their wives and not their wives, but they're sitting in the company of Gentile slave women, Hmm. right? That they're sitting in the company of Gentile men. And if we hear the story of Cornelius loudly, it's, it's Peter going, the biggest act of wonder and sign and miracle here is that I just stepped over the threshold of your house. Right. And that's what the church of Jerusalem is so pissed off about when he comes back is <laughs> what were you doing in that guy's house? And he's going, I know, I know, I know. Like I had all the same like freak out feelings, but, but look how the spirit put this together. And who, who were we to say, who was I to say what is of God and what is not of God and and God caught me out by giving me a three-time message again before this even got started so that I wouldn't miss the point. And, and yet to watch the fact that what they name, even in that story, is all of our points of separation. That you shouldn't be coming into my house. I should never have you. Um, I shouldn't go into yours. If, if you do end up coming into mine or I have to somehow serve you, I have to break all the dishes that I just used for you. Like, all that stuff that says we are not one. And by the way, us Jews consider ourselves the holier ones in this moment, that Jesus just breaks that down. And the church is to live in that new broken down space where the spirit says, but I am the one who has birthed you, right? By water and my own life, joining you to the life of Jesus, to the belovedness of the father. So you're all children, You're all brothers and sisters of this new Adam. You're being conformed to the image of the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And so Jewish men, get over it, because you're going to probably sit this week and listen to a Gentile slave girl preaching for this week, right, as the spirit anoints her. And he's never even spoken to her, right, in any public context. You just think of all the 
all the upheaval that's that is what they should be manifesting as a as like a movie preview right for the new creation future that's coming is that the world should be able to watch their lives together and go i have absolutely no idea what i'm seeing but if there's a place for anyone and everyone there there might be a place for me there too but there might not be a place for me if i want to truck in and hold all of the labels that give me value out mm -hmm. there yeah because they they won't so I, I think there's just something very dynamic. I love that question. And sorry, I went off so long on it. But <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think those kinds of intentional moments in Matthew's part is to say, I hope this is what you're still looking like. And if you aren't, please remember who you are and whose you wow. are, because Jesus is tied to the lineage yeah. of these ones, including these women. Yeah. Wow. Whew. <laughs> Excellent. The inclusive gospel. The inclusive gospel. You know, you, I had, like I wanted to interrupt you 16 times, except I didn't want to miss anything you said. <laughs> you just thought, I'll be quiet but, for a while. <laughs> you know, one of the, we're very involved with what might be the fastest growing house church movement on the planet. It's in Northern India. We've got a family that are family to us. And mm. um, in, in one of my earlier books, I wrote about the first time I walked into a house church. Now, I in 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 my denomination, I'd been responsible for you know small group structure or, or life group or connect group or whatever you want to call it. And I walked in, and you reminded me a, a moment ago how radical it was. Like mm -hmm. it did. I didn't have any frame of reference, and I couldn't tell who the leader was. And quickly, it, I realized it makes no difference who the leader is. And there was this collegiality, and in the best mm -hmm. sense, democracy, and I never mm -hmm. wanted it to end. It went on for two and a half hours. I never wanted it to end, and I got bit by that bug probably about nine years ago, and, and so we're really committed mm -hmm. to it. But that's what came back to me as you shared what it would have been like for them to come into this new organism called the church, in it, in, and you can't just shift over the synagogue and—, and well, they wouldn't have put a cross up, but you know what I mean, <laughs> metaphorically. It is a whole, whole new thing. Wow. Hmm. Um, and can... with great resistance, right? Like, I just want to, I guess, as we look at how difficult it is to even find ways to be together as the church in the world today, and the divisions that we, we create for ourselves, it's hard enough to overcome the divisions that are already given to us than to create ones for ourselves, right? In the sense that, that when God upends stuff like this, the way that you just described and the way that we see in the New Testament, part of their faithfulness to God, right? This is part of what happens in Acts 10 with, with Peter's having to see this vision is part of their faithfulness to God had been around faithfulness to those divisions, yeah. right? Faithfulness to not engage in life this way. And for, for God to flip it in this person and in this outpouring of God, the spirit so quickly and so radically, it, I think I have to keep giving grace and remembering it takes me so long to learn things. And it takes me so long to believe that this isn't just something 
that we sort of think is God and we'll see how it turns out, but to really stay and yes. say, Lord, are you yes. in this for the long haul? I think, I think, yeah, it really is upending and it really does take time to settle. And unfortunately it didn't take too long for that radicality to be replaced by what felt more familiar again. And it's still the case in so many of our churches 2000 years later. So yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's also such a challenging thing. The, to, the whole impetus is always moving away from that, that new, you know, I read somewhere yeah. you can't put new wine in an old wine skin. And, <laughs> but, but isn't that what Paul's saying? Galatians, oy vey. You had it, and you're slipping away. Isn't isn't that what the writer to Hebrews is saying? Don't you guys remember who you are? You're you're yeah. you're, you're you come to Mount Zion. Uh, Peter saying again and again, guys, this is not your home. You're you know you're you're a sojourner. My point is just simply that the leaders, the teachers, the ones sowing into the early church were continually pushing against the very thing that you've talked about and needed to push against it. Uh, or it would be overcome by the old. Yeah. yeah. Hey, can we talk a little bit about chapter four? I mean, I love chapter two and three, but... Um, Let me just say, sorry, just as we shift gears, we've got several people watching online right now. We we can see comments. So if you guys have questions on something that's said, you want to follow up questions, something like that, just type that in there and we'll be sure to, to pass that on and make that a part of the conversation as well. Uh, or if you just want to give a thumbs up or a, a cheer, whatever. Uh We'd love to interact with you on those comments. So, yeah, we, chapter those four. those really help us. Those are yep. terrific. Okay, chapter four, verse eleven, verses the temptation of Christ, the testing of Christ. Um, I want to talk about the first temptation a little bit. He, uh, Satan, the accuser, uh, he addresses Jesus' physical hunger, which is really his willingness to be weak. And he tells him, you can fix this. You don't have to be like that. And, uh, pardon me. And I think that the enemy in, in our own times of testing and temptation, it's never changed right back from the garden. Did God really say, are you sure you heard him? Right. He's always trying to get us to, to connect on the doubt, but, The, the thing that jumped out at me was the enemy's connection to if you've got problems, that must mean there's something wrong mm. in your identity or wrong in your relationship. There's something, there's something wrong. And I think, I think that this, and I'd like to know what you think. One of my great concerns in 21st century Western evangelicalism is I think there's an underlying security, insecurity, about our identity. I think that's why we're always saying we've got the victory, victory in Christ, etc. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but there's such an emphasis, and right next to it is... So you can live a victorious life. You don't have to have these financial problems. You don't have to have sick kids. You don't have to have a marriage that's hanging on by its fingernails. And to me, that sounds an awful lot like the old and original temptation of, Mm. hey, you can fix this. Just turn these stones into bread. If you agree with what I'm saying, if, if you don't, 
that's okay. I I can take it. But if you if you agree with me, how do you think we got there in in our 21st century evangelicalism? Well, first of all, I agree with you. And and I think yeah, so also how did we get there? I think you named it when you were um talking over these last few weeks and in, in your conversation with Brad Jersak, that if there was ever a gift to the church in some ways, it was the reformation because we constantly need to be supple in the hands of God and not to sort of construct the church in our image and then ask him to bless it. But that's, that's why it also says ever reforming. Right. And so I think that, one of the harshest things that also ever happened to humanity was the Reformation. Yeah. Because the Reformation and the printing press and the Bible and putting it in the hands of individuals right at the time of the Enlightenment, suddenly the human subject, our our individual selves became the center of our own story, right? We become the center of everything. And so then as this goes on for like centuries by the time you and I are growing up I don't know if you were in bible studies like mine but you know we'd all have our bibles that we've been given by our parents or our pastors or our Sunday school teachers and you know we're sitting around in a circle at age you know 10 12 16 reading a passage and then saying what does this mean to you <laughs> as if we had any understanding at all. At the same time, we really did want and trust that God by his word would speak to us, right? And he yeah. did. Yeah. So in his mercy, he really was speaking to us. But at the same time, it trains us to believe that the truest truth that we're ever getting out of anything that scripture says is the thing that speaks to me, right? Instead of the thing that actually submits my life to God's faithful life with Israel and now with his people as a, as the whole cloud of witnesses of people, um, those who are more alive in the presence of Jesus, like my mom who passed away, but is, I never really can say my mom is dead because she's so not dead, right? She's been swallowed up by life in the language of, of Paul in St. Corinthians five. So I think of those who are in that like larger cloud of witnesses who actually see further in and further up what's truer and truer about who they are and becoming, who also bear witness with Jesus on our behalf and also bear witness with us to the truth of what they have lived and what we are living. And I think as individuals in a Protestant world predominantly, we also have no theology of the communion of the saints, right? So, and I don't mean saints like, like the way that we've been fearful of Catholic sainthood, but the Hagioi, the holy ones, the the communion of God's people. And so we see our Christian lives as these very lone ranger ideas. And I think that you, I can't remember um, who it was. Um, Maybe it was Wesley who you quoted, who was just saying like the, the, terror of actually looking at a lone Christian There's, is probably the most unchristian thing, right? That's right. So how we got here, 
Lots and lots and lots of ways that have been reinforced um, very subtly. And also, I think the fact that we've been shaped to consume, we've been shaped to be those who use mm, and wow. use and use and abuse one another. And so then God becomes the one who is also to be consumed and to be used um, at our beck and call. And so I think when we look at the temptation of Jesus, all of the full temptation, and then actually carry that the way that as you just walked through the New Testament, whether it's Hebrews or, or Peter or Paul, just speaking to churches saying, what about your suffering do you think is, is off the storyline, right? Like, but this is our participation in the fellowship of Jesus, right? Who, who doesn't suffer, doesn't make us suffer because he suffered. It's the other way around. Hmm. He knew we would suffer and our life in a broken world is bound to suffering until its final release. And so the only way he can be our high priest is to join himself in full human experience to the circumstances, to the events, to the um, emotional responses, to the questions in his head, to the thousands, thousands of ways that we are tempted or tried or challenged to go, did I really hear that right? And to already have the enemy go, did you really hear that right? When it's called like trying to just listen to the father and walk by the power of the spirit to the things that the father is doing. So I think when we hear these um, New Testament leaders saying, but this is the life of glory, which is the participation in the fellowship of Jesus life. It's to watch cruciformity be the shape that all of us begin to wear and to bear. And that if anything, when the church starts saying, you know, where is God because we're suffering or God must not be in this because the numbers are not being added to my ministry daily or wow. whatever, whatever we've done to be the measuring stick that says, if God's in it, these are my success measures. We haven't, we haven't heard the New Testament yeah, written only to churches who are suffering. Yeah. Only to people hmm. who were under tremendous oppression and duress. And every single one of these letters and every apocalyptic moment of John or prophetic wisdom moment in James or Hebrews is trying to say, but you are absolutely tied. If your life is crazy, welcome to the <laughs> words of Jesus who said, it's going to get crazy. Right, because you're going to be trying to live a new creation life in an old creation world that wants nothing to do mm. with this because it will undo the power that has given them yes. meaning yep. to destroy and not be held accountable. And you are going to live a life that looks like mine. And and so suddenly I, I think like for instance, one of the moments that, that strikes me most profoundly really is when we watch Paul in his first journey, right, in 14, and he, and to watch him with Barnabas and going through these churches and coming under this tremendous persecution, right? Like they're following him from town to town and stirring things up to the point where in Acts 16, he's, he's being, probably my numbers are wrong now, but he's um, stoned. Right? He's a Lystra Derby and he's he is stoned. Yep. And it says they took him outside the city and they stoned him. And 
And then there's a little quiet sentence. And then the disciples gathered around him and prayed for him. And he got up. And I think, okay, most people do not leave a stoning until you're dead or pretty close to dead. And then here's this prayer and he gets up. And the next thing he does is goes to the next city. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then says, we are got to go tell him about the kingdom. And then while he's there, he goes, you know what? We need to go back to those other three cities where we've been. Because <laughs> we need to really encourage them. Because maybe they're sort of forgetting that the kingdom is both this participation in the fellowship of suffering and glory. Because God will go everywhere there is suffering. And he will go everywhere that there is false glory. And he will bring glory as the flag to plant in true human suffering to say, I'm the last word over this. And then to topple the false glory and go, this is what it looks like to actually be a God of humility in this space. And, and so you watch him and I think, what mission organization do I know would support a Paul to go back to these places of tremendous oppression? Because wow. In my American experience, most of the time when there's serious oppression on the ground, we airlift our American missionaries out of those spaces. And I think, how is that faithful to this thing that God is doing, which says, but this would actually look like my son, right? To be present in the world where the world most needs to see the embodied presence of God, that I am God, Emmanuel, yes. with and for yeah. you. And mm. so, yeah, I think there's a, a very powerful thing that you're asking about right there. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 12, as you're talking about Paul being stoned and stuff. In 2 Corinthians 12, he starts listing off his, his kind of his resume of suffering, if you will. Uh, and then he that leads right into that passage uh Sorry, that's in Second Corinthians 11, and then that leads right into the beginning of chapter 12, where he starts talking about, uh, I'm not going to boast in anything but my weakness. And he talks about his, the thorn in his flesh and stuff. And I think that's exactly what he's saying is when you begin to boast in your weakness, that's what recenters you on on that glory that, that Christ is talking about, the glory of the cruciform life. Um, and so I think that's why Paul continues to call us back to boasting in our weakness in that way. And yet here, what I love about Matthew and the fact that that it's the spirit who leads Jesus into the wilderness. Yes. Yeah. Not Satan who leads him there. It's God who leads yeah. him there to say hmm. the spirit is the one, I think, who is asking Jesus, do you really believe what happened to you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do, yeah. Will you reckon with this anointing and this calling, because you know from the telling of your parents about the call upon your life, you know because you've had this unique relationship and love for the Father that no one can really understand, including you, right? That you've grown up completely normally human and at the same time obedient. So it feels so abnormal, but actually truly human obedient to his parents, to the Lord, but he learned obedience, right? Says Hebrew. So he doesn't just like exercise his divine brain and go, I know how to do this right. He is given a choice every day, all day, like every kid and every adult to go, is this God's moment or am I going to take it for some other 
storyline. And so I think when he is anointed and, and here's both the kind of reclaiming of God's whole story of the fullness of humanity and particularly God's story of Israel, because we hear, right, that language of, of naming Israel in Deuteronomy, which I love that he turns around and uses that language to speak back to the enemy, but say, I've named you my son. And you know covenantally what this means on behalf of a whole people, as well as the whole human race for whom my people stand in so that the world can see, well, who God is and what God looks like in relation to people. And I picked a people to have a relationship with, to let the whole world see and, and be joined into that. So when that happens to him and the, and, and then the spirit leads him out for a place of, of, quiet and reckoning and wrestling with the implications of this is Isaiah 52, 53 category, right? Will you take on the suffering servant call? Because this is the only faithful manifestation of the character of God that there ever will be is the one who would self give to the point of profound, not just humility, but humiliation and suffering on behalf of the other that God suffers long on behalf of the ever to give them their life back. This is the only way that God will invite you into this narrative because it's the only way that God is God. Yeah. And, and so to hear that call by the spirit and then watch the enemy <laughs> wrestling with the same question, like, could I turn this right in the same way that the first Adam was turned? Can I get him to, not just question his own identity, but can I get him to question God? Can I get him to believe that God is not trustworthy? Which is how I always hear Genesis 3. Like, you know, did God really say, you know, that's a big trust that, that he isn't hiding something from you and that he actually isn't a liar? Because that's pretty much what Satan says in Genesis 3, right? That God yeah. is a liar. He's withheld something from you, and I'm telling you the bigger, deeper truth. But it has to be tied so much to something really true, or we won't listen. Because a good lie actually has to have so much truth woven into it. And and so I I watched Jesus in this these weeks, and then this this incredible encounter with the enemy, and I hear the overlay both of Satan and as you were talking about Stephen, your talk of of this profound warfare and the fact that this is both humanity truly warring with the evil one and resisting, but it's also God going like over my dead body, only it is going to be over my dead body. And you can't get my son to undo that. Right. For the sake of the world that both of these things are happening. But to me, that's such a profound moment of Jesus. True human life is to say, it's not just because he's hungry. It's not just because he's tired. It's to go, this is really your life. Like you, you have to wrestle with the implications of the things the father asks you to do the same way I do. You have to, you have to come to terms with the fact that this is not going to be easy. And this is not going to be maybe the way that you wanted it to go or the timing in which you wanted this to happen or who knows what. But if you understand 
because you've been tempted in every way I've been, and not just for 40 days in the desert or for a day or whatever it looks like in this, this account. But as Luke says, he left him for a more opportune time. I'd be like, okay, that would be every day, all day, <laughs> right? Like Jesus, every day, all day. Being like, but it would be so much easier to just finish healing all these people, Father, right? Like think about a day when people are coming for getting healed. And what if the father says, son, the sun is going down and you're really tired and you need to eat, you need to rest, you need to be with the boys. You need to stop now. Yeah, yeah, it's and, true. And there's still 50 people like lined up for healing. I go, that is a serious temptation. That makes me think, Steve, about you talking about Jesus, that where Satan really also tempts us in our strength, mm-hmm. right? Wow. That it's right outside our peripheral vision. Yep. But Father, just a little more, right? Or just a little. And then the minute we we push him just a little, then we could do it again and again and again and again and again, right? And so it's just, I watch the temptation in the desert and think, Jesus, thank you so much that you had to tell us about this because you were the only person there. You had to tell your disciples and us and the gospel writers got this from you. So you had to say what it was like and what you said in response. But it also helps us know why you say things like get behind me, Satan, when Peter, again, wants to bring something that sounds very much like these temptations from the beginning of your ministry to make it easier to bypass the cross that you see looming at the end of your ministry. And that this never goes away, that we don't become better Christians and then have less temptation. It's like you were saying in your talk, the the more we know him and love him and can be entrusted to, to, to be with him, to obey into the things that he's doing and invites us to do with him, boy, we had better expect that, it gets tougher and tougher in terms of the resistance that we encounter because we have more to give away. We have more love that we've experienced. We have more, more presence of God that we know and can bear witness to. And Satan doesn't want it. Yeah. So I'm amazed by this. I, we're getting a lot of questions and comments popping up right now. Um, Right? Yes. Can you see them? uh, I can't read them, but I know they're there. (laughs) Uh, I would just say this one quick sentence, and then let's have Tim read some of those. The only way of Christ is canonic love, right? Mm -hmm. If there's one thing I've learned the last 10 years, it's, it's about canonic love, that there is never any other way than to be self emptying. And at the heart, and and next week when I look at the second half of chapter four, we get famously, he says, follow me. And yes, it means mission, but it means what you're talking about. And the last thing I just want to say, and I, I just to highlight something I said last week, it is so interesting because it, it's a picture of what we're talking about, the difference between self-aggrandizement, convenience, you know, power, and, and uh, canonic love. Satan says, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus instead at the end takes the bread 
and says, this is my body broken for you. I, that had to be so intentional. <laughs> it's just remarkable. Now, I'm going to be quiet and let Tim lead us through some stuff here. That you're, this is terrific. We're really enjoying this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This is fantastic. Uh, a couple of comments that just reading off the screen here from YouTube. Um, lots of just amens. Uh, just a lot of people just being very thankful, Cherith, for what you've brought today. Uh, you mentioned uh, about a half hour ago or so, t- talked about the Reformation. Uh, somebody was asking what was bad about the Reformation. Uh, what you said, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, was that the Reformation was really a, a gift to the church because there was a, a major correction there. Was there in any way an overcorrection uh, that happened during the, the Reformation, in your opinion? I, I think what I meant by that in sorry when I just get spinning too fast, but yeah. I think that with the Reformation came um, came the the fact that the Bible really did the the Bible, right? In the hands of the believers. So you're no longer waiting for the priest to read the Bible in a foreign language to you probably, right? Because your average layperson didn't speak Latin if you're in Europe. And and they're the ones who are far away, right? At the front of the um, church, um, having the Eucharist and like, basically it's sort of an untouchable space where somebody performs this on your behalf and you just have to receive whatever is happening. But boy, once the that church structure shifts, and people begin to gather in different ways into fellowship and also begin to have the word at their own fingertips. It's just the coalescing of the fact that actually the enlightenment was certainly putting the human subject in the center through the sciences and through all these other things as well. But it, it, you know, historically so happens that the reformation is happening at that time as well. And Ironically, the very gift that should have um, strengthened the church in some ways, and it very much did so, and it's a gift to us, um, not over and against the Catholic Church, but as a, a cleansing of things historically in that moment that were happening. But it also then becomes like any other gift. If we hold on to it very long, we tend to get our fingerprints all over it, and mm-hmm. and it can often turn into our own sort of self-made curse. And I think the way that we have as a culture in the West been conditioned to put ourselves in the center and then make the scripture work for us instead of to listen in the faithful community. Um, It it really does some, some bad work on us that God needs to reinvite us into his whole community and into the historical um, listening and reading community of God's people that just quiets us down and just humbles us and says, it doesn't start with me. It doesn't end with me. And if I really want to know God, I should have a curiosity to know my family and my family history and my family photo album in the Bible and in the history of the church and to listen to the wonder of the ways that other people have met God ahead of me that both tell me, oh, other people have been here before and struggled with these things or met God in these same ways or boy, others really have a way to respond to things that I never even knew and were really a tremendous gift to me in my isolation. So I I didn't want to decry the Reformation. I just think everything in history is always both gift 
and it gets broken um, because it gets gifted into a broken world. So. Mm. One of our regular listeners, we'd advertise that we would be talking with you about the humanity of Jesus. Um, and she had a lot of questions that, to be honest, I felt like I wasn't educated enough to ask. So I'm going to do my best to summarize some of it. But um, she was asking, what can we learn about our own humanity when studying the life of Jesus? And even looking at not just the the life of Jesus in the Gospels, but also the the, the theophanies, the... the uh, even the apocalyptic uh, stuff, like what, what can we draw uh, from those things in terms of what our, hum- what that means for our humanity? If, if Jesus was fully human and fully God, are we? Um, yeah. What are the implications for us? Yeah. Yeah. What are those implications? So I, I know this is just a, uh, I'm going to just tease you, Tim, because yeah. you just said when Jesus was human. <laughs> yes. And that's a sign, right, of our of our Christian Gnosticism, hmm. which basically falls into this temptation to think, well, Jesus was human for a while. And, and we're uh-huh. not even sure if he was really human, but he was human, sort of human for 33 years. Right. And then at the ascension, he's just like dumping his body at cloud 37, like, oh, I'm so glad to be done with the human story and experience and back to some spiritual union with the father. And I used to read John 17 that way. Right. Like, oh, father, I just can't wait to be done. Like with this thing that I have to do and like back with you and the glory that we had before the creation of the world. And because why? Because I didn't know what to do with life in my body. Hmm. that I didn't know what to do with my humanity and the way the Christian story kept being told to me and given to me was profoundly Gnostic. It was not about the, the restoration of my human life forever. It was about immortality of the soul. So it was like, Oh, you know, we were made very good in the image of God to be human beings as his children and stewards in his created order, but actually it turned out really bad. So the best thing he can do for us is to turn us into something else when we die. Wow. And nobody says that straight up, but that is what so much of our teaching and curriculum and prayer life and hymnody sounds like, is that we're casting off this mortal coil and flying off into some yep. another, another land that does not belong to humanity. But if Jesus, right this second, who's listening to our conversation, right, by the Spirit, is still Jesus who looks like his mom and brothers and sisters and the DNA of his family system is probably five inches shorter than me, right? <laughs> In his glorified humanity is still wearing the marks of his wounds that he, he has joined human life to the triune life of God to keep it there forever. So in the language of Christopher Wordsworth's great hymn from the 19th century, man with God is on the throne. And when we look upon him, we see our future glory there. And I think what he's saying is this is Ephesians 1-2 prayer language of this one who died and God raised him and seated him to the highest place in exaltation, which, by the way, is 
is the theme of the New Testament, right? It's Psalm 110.1. That's the 25-time constant refrain, which is this one. The Lord said to my Lord, "This this man who you killed, God, not just raised him, but this man accredited by God with signs and wonders who also happens to be the son of God, he is seated in his new humanity at the right hand of the father. And from this place, this new human being, who's the firstborn of a new race of humanity, he is pouring out the spirit with the father because only this person could be the baptizer in the spirit because he's been submitted to the spirit as well as being the creator with the spirit. So, so from that place of exaltation, again, Philippians 2, only because he lived not just a human life, but a human life that finally and truly looked like God in all humility and humiliation to a cross. For this reason, God exalts this person, Jesus, the same man who you see going, says the angels, this same guy is coming back. It's not it's not like there's a third installment and it doesn't involve human beings. <laughs> this one is restoring what it means to be the glorified human children of God. And all of creation is holding on by its fingertips to see what the glory of the human children of God revealed. Psalm 8 come to pass that we who are made to be crowned with glory and honor and to have things put under our feet so that we could participate with God to bring forth life. Finally, it will happen. And Hebrews two says, do we see it? Not yet, but we see Jesus. This human being is there and is holding our place in line and mediating not only our present broken humanity, but he's, holding our space for the future that's coming for us, a future he can't wait to experience because he hasn't yet had the privilege of having a future where all of his brothers and sisters are finally new and not screwed up. Like, like how fun will that be? <laughs> so I think if this is really what the gospel is about, is you get your life back because Jesus is the one standing in going, the father has already seen you perfect and finished and you look like me. So you're stressed out about whether you're really performing up to whatever you think the father loves. Guess what? I'm your high priest who stands in. He always sees you finish through me. We love you. We are not worried about how this turns out. What What we're engaged in in terms of your daily life is that you need to know that you're loved to be able to live out that love and to be shaped by that love. So we're fully committed to this relationship with you minute by minute, day in and day out, but not to make sure we can make sure you turn out. Okay. We've already seen wow. in the life of the new one, what your life is like. So God is not worried, right? He's not yes. stressed. He's like, Nope, we're just in it. So all that said, this is a human gospel. It's a human gospel. And Jesus wasn't human then, and he wasn't a man then, and he wasn't, it's this incarnate one is the love of God, right? Nothing can separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus, who is Christ Jesus, because the minute you could take apart the incarnation, which is permanent, that's when you could separate the love of God from us. Wow. Like, that's when death or heaven or hell or the future or the like he's like 
none of those things can separate you because this one who is homoousian with us and God is never not going to be homoousian with us and God from this moment forward. So settle down and and get into it because participation is the participation in this fellowship of suffering and glory. So glory in the already is going to show up in the weirdest places and look as a non-glorious as a cross all the time. And the minute it looks like glory that you like, you better go back and just ask the father if that's really where he is planting a glory flag. But I think we just have to keep remembering that this is about getting our, our lives back. Right. And the only person who can teach us that. So I think our sister for asking the question is how do we look at Jesus? I look at him every day. I wake up. I'm like, Jesus, this is it. Like Ephesians two, Paul just said, I was dead in my transgressions, but by the spirit, you have raised me and Steve and Tim and everybody else and seated us with you at the father's right hand already. Already our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So I wake up in the morning and there's just right hand seating next to the father for all these children. And we wake up and go, father, what, what are you doing today? Jesus, you who are the Lord of all things, who are busy and have not passed the baton to the church by the spirit. It's you who are the Lord over all things. What are you doing today that you would invite me by the spirit to participate in? Am I attending to your voice? Am I listening with you the way you listened to the father by the spirit to do the things you expected in your day and then to have the most unexpected things? happen in your day because the gospels never account that jesus is busy deciding when he wakes up in the morning you know i think today i'll multiply bread you read that account you realize that day (laughs) starts out with jesus being absolutely exhausted trying like crazy to get the heck out of dodge on a boat yeah and god brings him back un uncharacteristically brings him back to shore And says, son, I need you to keep teaching and to be present. And in that day, he has to listen to go, we're doing what, Father? We're (laughs) we're multiplying bread. And then you think the day is done. And he sends them off and says, I need to be quiet. And then the wind comes up. And again, you're like, Jesus, is he running down to this shoreline going, do I get to have the exercise of my authority to quiet the wind and the waves? Because my brothers are about to go under. And Mm. I'm so concerned for them and then the father's like well no son actually i'd like you to just start walking (laughs) and i i remember reading these gospels and walking down to the edge of the water where our family has a place in bc and just like how did you do that like what what how did you not hear the (laughs) like did you not think this maybe maybe this was a temptation by the evil one moment and and I, and Jesus finally was like, Charith, please stop asking me the how question and just ask me the who question. Like, watch <laughs> me, just like I said to Peter, but I need you to but keep asking me those kinds of questions because yeah. that's exactly what I want you to learn with me and from me and from my place of authority in my ascension. This is who I am inviting you to do exactly what I was doing then 
and what I am doing now with you and through you to listen to the voice of the Father and live a life submitted to the Spirit. The idea that we would begin to follow the followers of Jesus, that we would begin to go, well, what does a really human Christian life look like? Well, let me look at Paul or Peter or somebody who's trying to follow Jesus. No way. Jesus is going, I'm the only one who's actually pulled this off and and is giving you a participation, a union with my life. So watch me. Be with me. Be present to me to find out what it means to get your human life back. Amen. Mm, Amen. Whew. That was good. I had to to refrain from cheering a few times there. Man. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, First off, we're we're out of time, I just noticed. But will you come back and, and hang with us again sometime soon? If we just get to love on Jesus out loud... Anytime. Awesome. Anytime. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. There's been a huge response. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much. Uh, hey, just real quick, um, and Sherith, you mentioned this, but I, I wanted to talk about the campaign that we've got going right now that we're calling From Survive to Thrive. Uh, this is a program that is designed to help young women, uh, teenage girls as young as 13 years old, actually, who... Uh, need to escape an abuser. Uh, they are often living homeless on the streets. They've been impregnated by uh, their abuser and abandoned, uh, and they're living just a, a life of great danger in Kampala and, and around Kampala in Uganda. And my friend Annabelle, who, by the way, quick tease, I believe she's going to be sitting right here in that chair next week. She's coming right. to Albuquerque to see us. So uh, she's going to come hang out with us. One and of tell our heroes. Stories. Absolutely. She and her team at the Remnant Generation are rescuing these girls uh, and really helping them walk through a healing process. And what we're doing is helping them by uh, covering the costs related to that pregnancy. So uh, we are covering all the the prenatal uh, doctor's visits, the uh, medicine, vitamins, all those things, and then the labor and delivery and the the nursery costs and things like that at the end. Uh, It costs $450 to cover an entire pregnancy from beginning to end. Uh, And that is going to set this, this young woman up for a whole new future. And that's why we're calling it from survive to thrive because it's more than just helping them and their baby to survive but really it's the first step in a process that is going to lead to absolute transformation multi-generational transformation so uh, if you'd like to learn more about that and how you can get involved how you can rescue really two lives uh, mother and her unborn baby head to impactnations.com slash thrive you can learn more about it there uh, and actually if you want uh, I did up this little thingamabob Mother's Day is coming so we've done this little card you can it, I made it square so you can share it on the Instagram or the Facebook or something like that. Um, but you can also download it, print it, put it in a card or whatever. But uh, you can give in honor of your mom. And this card actually, it says, Mom, you make the world a more beautiful place and you've inspired me to join you. An abused pregnant teen and her unborn baby have just been rescued because of you. Uh, so if you'd like to learn more about that, impactnations.com slash thrive. Uh, we'd love it if you could join us in rescuing lives. We are aiming to rescue 100 gals uh, and we've got doubling funds right now so we've got matching grants so every time you give your dollar is doubled uh, immediately so you're really instead of rescuing two lives i guess you're rescuing four lives uh so um 
please come join us impactnations.com slash thrive can i put in a plug for what some have seen but many haven't yeah that incredible video when i came back mm. after being away and it popped up on my computer yesterday and i i quite literally had to get kleenex yeah could you just tell them how to find that? Absolutely. Uh, if well, if you're on YouTube, actually, you just scroll down a little bit on the on the recent videos, and you will see that there's a video. It's about three and a half minutes. Tells the story of a young girl named Robina who was rescued from uh, basically from being on the verge of suicide, uh, and her life has completely changed. I won't spoil the ending, but it is fantastic. So check if you're on Facebook, you can look there, or on YouTube, either one, you'll find the video. Um, Chair, thank you so much for being with us today. It's just been such a pleasure. I learned a heck of a lot. I've been inspired. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I'm probably going to go back and listen to that again because I'd like to take notes. But yeah, uh, it was great. It was, it was really, really good. Thank you. Is there anything that you'd like to uh, direct people to? You got any upcoming speaking gigs or anything that you'd like to invite people to, to attend? Uh, I'm – Really happy to invite you to the Open Table Conference that will be happening at the uh, end of June. And then this past year, there were an, several of us who had the privilege of discussing the Gospel of John together. Yeah, it was great. And we'll, come September, um, have that same, I don't know how many weeks, 20-ish weeks um, of doing um, John's Revelation together. So wow. um, those are places where I will be looking forward to hanging out with people who are loving the Lord in, in the ways that you are and and just sort of hanging in the ways that you've also been talking about scripture um, in all of its um, threefold sense. So please feel free to come and join us in those places. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, and the links uh, for those things are in the show notes, uh, whether you're listening on the podcast app or if you're watching on YouTube live, uh, you'll find the links right there. So you can click there and that'll jump straight to the page describing those programs. So, Chair, uh, thank you so much. It was great to be with you. Great to get to know you some and just hear some of this incredibly rich theology. Uh, and we'll have you back again real soon. Thank you Great. very Thank much. Thank you so much for the privilege. Awesome. All right. God bless, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.